delightful little ragamuffins. I am John Miller, your friendly neighborhood anarchist. But most importantly, the host of Everybody Trades. Ah, welcome, welcome, once again. And today, I think I'm going to have to answer one of the most frequently asked questions I've gotten in the last few months. Heck, even years, but certainly, certainly last month when the stock market took a bit of a sharp decline there. I think the Dow was down 1,000 at one point intraday. Well, honestly, I could give you my guess, and frankly that's all that will be, is an educated guess on when the next recession will occur. But before we even get there, it seems to me that it's quite important to define what actually a recession is. Because I'll just rhetorically ask you, my listener, right now, what is a recession? What's a depression? What are those two things? How are they different? Etc. I'll give you a moment. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. All right, that's good enough. I'm guessing a lot of you didn't really have an answer beyond, well, it's a time of bad economy. It's a it's a tough time for your pocketbook. It's a tough time for the job market, for unemployment for wages, for whatever it might be, economic activity in general. Now, some of you, you might have even said something about gross domestic product. Well, you're kind of on to the right track there, at least in terms of the mainstream definition. Now, if you go to a place like Investopedia, they'll tell you that a recession is a period of temporary economic decline during which trade and industrial activity are reduced generally identified by a, by a fall in GDP in two consecutive quarters. So in other words, according to Investopedia, two straight quarters of GDP recession is what a recession is. In other words, the GDP falls instead of grows. It fails to grow. It recedes in growth. That's what's called a recession for two straight quarters. Then on the other hand, they define a depression as a severe and prolonged downturn. In economics, a depression is commonly defined as an extreme recession that lasts three or more years or leads to a decline in real gross domestic product of at least 10%. So a recession is a decline in GDP for two consecutive quarters, while a depression, again, according to Investopedia, is essentially a really long recession that lasts three or more years and includes a decline of overall GDP of at least 10%. Now, first of all, you may be able to tell that clearly there's at least one massive assumption in these definitions here, and it's an assumption that we've used in America for over 100 years now, and that's that gross domestic product, GDP, is the best way to measure the health of the overall American economy. Well, what is GDP, essentially? Well, it's essentially a government statistic that measures all of spending. Essentially, anytime there's a transaction, anytime money changes hand in this country, whether it's a small business transaction, a corporate huge buy, some sort of enormous transaction, and yes, even government spending is also factored into GDP. So whenever the government buys a lot of tanks and bombs from Lockheed Martin or it spends money on the welfare state or social security benefits, whatever it might be, 
literally every dollar that comes out of the federal treasury is figured in to GDP. So first of all, we have to establish one thing. No one can predict the future, not one of us. No matter what bureaucratic organization we're a part of, no matter if we're the president, the Speaker of the House, whatever it might be, all of us as human beings cannot predict the future, particularly the farther you go out in the future. It becomes impossible to predict. So with that in mind, if an increase in GDP is simply an increase in the percentage of overall spending in the country, how can we confidently say that that's a good thing? How can we confidently say that spending today will result in a positive outcome in the near to distant future? Well, again, I'd argue that we cannot. But that is the inherent assumption of GDP, is that all spending is a good thing for the economy. Well, if you just think about your own life and your own situation, your own personal budget, maybe you own a small business, whatever it might be, the point is that sometimes your life is actually better. There are better decisions for your pocketbook, your lifestyle, by actually cutting spending. If you're able to find a way, for instance, say you're one of the people who has decided to cut out the cable companies, DirecTV, and you found a way to pay less for essentially the same TV with Sling or YouTube or whoever it might be. Well, clearly that is a lower per- that's lower spending. You've lowered your own GDP, and yet, obviously in your own mind, this is a better outcome. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made that trade. That's based on our own subjective values. You see, free trades are always based on our own subjective values. At the moment of trade, let's take an example here. Our dance studio, and by our I mean mine, my wife's, my sister-in-law's. I'm basically, eh, I'm behind the scenes guy. They basically run the whole thing, let's be honest. But the point is, a couple years ago, when we were looking for a spot, a place to rent, a place to open our dance studio, there's no way that we could have possibly known in the future what that result is going to be. And still to this day, we're, we're never going to know today in five years. What, what are we going to do? What are we going to make? Are we going to be successful? Are we going to be closed? Who the heck knows? But all I know is two years ago, we were looking for a dance studio. We wanted to open a space to open a dance studio. That was what our subjective values were. Now, on the other side of this trade is our landlord. Well, his subjective values said, I want to own property and rent it out to small business people. And at the end of the day, we shook hands, both sides of this transaction, literally and figuratively, shook hands, agreed to a price, and they moved forward on this transaction. Now, from both sides' perspective, we can confidently say on that day, at the moment of that handshake, that both sides agreed that they were benefiting from this. We were getting something that we wanted, and so was the other party. The party was getting rent from his property, and we were getting a dance studio that was obviously worth more to us than the amount of money that we're paying each month. It's a pretty simple equation, right? But then on the other hand, again, just keep in mind, this does not guarantee for either side that in the future, that in two years, two years later now, are either side satisfied with that? Well, again, that's going to be up to their own subjective values, isn't it? And certainly even non-subjectively, from a pure profit standpoint, from a dollars and cents perspective, 
Yeah, again, you can't calculate that in the future either. You can't guarantee any of that. The future is unknown. But then to contrast that, to contrast that free exchange that I just described for you, again, there's government exchange. There's there's the forcible removal of money from you via taxation, and then there's the hidden tax, printing of money, right? The Federal Reserve prints a lot of money and thus causes the value of your wages and your savings relatively to go down. And the honest truth is anytime you're, you are taxed on a transaction in some ways, I suppose you could say, yes, when you pay sales tax, for instance, I suppose you could make the argument that in some ways you're consenting to that transaction. But when the, when the opposite, when the, but, but but again, there is no – boy, I'm stumbling here a little bit. I apologize. There is nothing in common with those two things, though. When a third party comes up to you and offers you no negotiation, no recourse, and just says simply, you must pay this sales tax or else you cannot buy it, then that really isn't a negotiation. That really isn't a free transaction, is it? And the bottom line is I would freely – I would offer to pay that sales tax freely if I felt like it was advantageous to me. I would pay the 8% voluntarily on top of whatever my transaction was voluntarily if I thought that to my subjective values, that was going to be a good outcome, right? So again, the point there is, just to recap, is that none of us know the future on anything, much less economic outcomes, whether it's profit and loss or our own personal level of satisfaction. We can't guarantee those things days from now, much less years from now. And quite honestly, gross domestic product, GDP, paints no clearer picture than that. Because guess what? When the Federal Reserve started in 1913, end of 1913 when the law, I believe 1914 is really when the year when it all came to fruition. And the Fed essentially started handing out money in exchange for gold, at least for a while. Well, what happened there? You had the roaring 20s quite quickly after that. Just six years later is when 1920 was. And then you had the roaring 20s. Well, when you just look at the actual total gross domestic product, not the percentage, but the amount of total money spent in this country in 1920, according to the balance.com was $687 billion. And then every year of the 1920s, except for 1921, that number went up just a little bit to the point where in 1929, it had increased by some 40 to 50%. We're talking again, 1920, $687 billion to now nearly $1 trillion, $977 billion in 1929. So we're talking a GDP increase of nearly 50%, some 40 to 50% there. I'm just doing that math off the top of my head. I think it's closer to 40. But you get the point. If you just look at the gross domestic product, that paints the picture of an incredibly healthy economy. And again, most people thought it was. People were, you know, all that new money was, going into new businesses, into the hot businesses, honestly, and a lot of that was obviously making its way into the the wage earners as well. 
people were making a lot more money. And by the end of the decade, people were playing the stock market at a higher rate, in part because, frankly, for years you were getting a higher return there than you were on any other sort of savings. But, of course, if you have any understanding of history whatsoever, you know that the 20s were right before the Great Depression. And, in fact, 1929 was Black, was Black Friday, Black Monday, whichever day it was. Eh. Dang it. (laughs) Which is it? Is it Black Monday or Black Friday? I forget. Anyway, there was that big, huge, enormous drop in the stock market where people are jumping literally out of their windows in Manhattan on Wall Street at some points. So how can this be? How can it be that GDP was so strong? We had the roaring 20s and then just overnight, all of a sudden, poof, the economy was gone and into... The Great Depression, the greatest depression of all time. Certainly, at the very least, we'd have to say that GDP is a lagging indicator, correct? And in fact, there are plenty of other times throughout history that the GDP is actually quite counterintuitive to what you would think would be going on in the real economy. Now, let me give you a great example of this. Sometimes I like to refer to Wikipedia on things, not because it's the most accurate source, but because I think it most accurately reflects the mainstream opinion on certain things, the mainstream take, if you will. See, on if you just simply Google the Great Depression, pull up that Wikipedia page, the second paragraph says, the Great Depression started in the United States after a major fall in stock prices that began around September 4th, 1929, and became worldwide news with the stock market crash of October 29th, 1929, known as Black Tuesday. Oh, Tuesday. Hey, there you go. And then they say between 29 and 32, worldwide GDP fell by an estimated 15%. Now, here's the real key sentence here at the very end. Some economies started to recover by the mid-1930s. However, in many countries, the negative effects of the, G- of the Great Depression lasted until the beginning of World War II. Let me say that again. However, in many countries, the negative effects of the Great Depression lasted until the beginning of World War II. Now, if that's not a counterintuitive statement, I don't know what is. How can it be that we're having terrible, under a circumstance in which people are losing their jobs, are standing in bread and soup lines, are in some cases starving to death, quite literally throughout the world because of the result of this Great Depression. They're malnourished. They're losing their teeth. They don't have a pot to piss in, as the old expression goes. But somehow in that moment, when when people of the Western world don't have a pot to piss in, by golly, that's the moment for warfare. This will get us out of the Great Depression. You know what will get us out of it, Ma? A good old-fashioned gunfight. That, that's what enriches everybody. Let's start building a bunch of tanks and bombs and just start killing each other. That'll do it, right? If that's not Thanos logic from the Avengers, I don't know what is. Well, I guess we'll just kill half the population and then we'll have more food. So what explains this level of what I would call terrible thinking? Again, it's GDP. If you just simply look at the GDP numbers, that's what it will tell you. 
Because again, we're talking about massive, massive amounts of government spending during the Great Depression, the New Deal, more specifically, and then, of course, World War II. And for some reason, this is what public schools have taught us. This is how, this is how the Great Depression was thwarted, through the Great New Deal and then somehow World War II. Well, yeah. So the first few years of the Great Depression, we had, again, this is according to thebalance.com, 1930, negative 8%. Then negative 6% in 31, 32, negative 12%. But then in 33, by golly, the New Deal came around and it was all the way down to only negative 1%. But then finally in 34, that's when GDP really took off because we were spending a whole crap load of money. So 34, 10%. 35, 9%. 36, 13%. 37, 5%. But somehow, ah, the depression seemed to kind of return there, didn't it? That was a huge drop in GDP. Ah, but thankfully, World War II right around the end there. Because, gee, that negative 3% in 38, we couldn't have handled that. But you know what? It started, we started increasing our defense in 1940. Yes, even before Pearl Harbor the U.S. started increasing its defense spending, partially with the whole land lease or lend lease thing, giving aid to Stalin and Russia. But the real point here, again, the war begins officially on the U.S.'s side in 1941 with the attack of Pearl Harbor, of course. And what you saw in those first three years were some of the biggest GDP years in history. Again, 1941, you've got a 17% increase in GDP, followed by 18% the next year, and then 17 the very next year in 1943 when defense spending had, in fact, tripled. Well, again, that explains it, doesn't it? It just shows you that, okay, so the government spent a crap load of money. That doesn't mean that any of that 17 18 19% increases in GDP That doesn't mean that any of that wound up in the pockets of the regular guy. No, that stuff ended up in the pockets of the weapons manufacturers, Congress, the Treasury, whoever you can imagine. Basically, anybody with special privilege and access to the Treasury, they're the ones who got the money. Banks, that kind of stuff. So then finally, you've got 1944 and a recession down to 8%. Now, that's still growth. But then by 45, you're down to 1% GDP. World, World War II has now ended, but apparently this is a bad thing economically. To now 46, you're looking at a negative 11% quote-unquote recession in 1946. Now again, of course in 1946, when World War II is over, America has won. The Japanese have been thoroughly defeated. The Nazis have been thoroughly defeated. Hitler is fucking dead. So yeah, of course you would expect that the government would spend less money in 1946 than it had in the previous few years, wouldn't you? Can anybody reasonably call this a bad thing? Should we have hoped that World War II would have continued for another, I don't know, 10 to 15 years like our current wars in the Middle East? Would that have been the ticket to true economic freedom in paradise? 
I think not. But this is the level of argument that Keynesian economic people make every single day in the news media in Washington. And and frankly, it drives me absolutely insane because, again, just because you spend a lot of money doesn't mean you spend it well. Look at every person who's ever won the lottery and spent all their money. Were they richer at the end of that? No, their money is gone because they spent it on things that can't come back. They may have drank it, put it up their nose, bought it on bought a bunch of cars that depreciate in value, whatever it is, that money is now gone. And you know what? When you buy an F-15 and it gets shot down, it's gone. When you drop a bomb, that bomb is gone. There is no lasting value. There's no coffee shop on the corner that somebody saved and built for. You see, it shouldn't be that dropping a bomb is the same dollar-for-dollar GDP calculation as somebody who's putting money into their coffee shop or their dance studio. That just doesn't make any sense. One of these things is longer-term, better, and more sustainable for society, and the other one just quite literally blows up societies. That's all it does, and it does nothing to enrich the people who are not bombed either, by the way. You don't enrich other people by bombing people thousands of miles away. That's just not how it works. I'm sorry. That doesn't make me a pacifist. It doesn't make me anti-defense, but it does make me anti-offense. But mostly, for the purposes of this show and the this particular episode, it makes me anti-nonsense. See, again, you can look at 1950. The biggest jump in GDP post-war was with the beginning of the Korean War. Well, great. We had 8%, 8%, 4%, 4%. Then the war was over, and we receded to a negative 0.6%. So again, GDP tells you absolutely nothing about the health of the economy. Nothing. Nothing. And if you don't believe me, take... Take 2008. Look at the GDP numbers leading up into 2008, the last Great Recession. There's nothing in those GDP numbers that would have told you beforehand that we were facing a Great Recession. In fact, it looked like the economy, just based on those numbers, was doing just fine. And the same thing with the tech bubble of 99-2000. See, that was a time when, at the very end of it, just anything that was related to the Internet was getting bid up like crazy on the stock market to the point where there were companies that had literally no earnings whatsoever. They may have never even made a sale, and yet they were still, just because they were attached to the Internet, because they had a dot-com on the end of their name, the hot money, the new money, was chasing after those hot stocks. Well, we saw this at the end of the 1920s. We saw it in 2008 with the real estate bubble, and frankly, we're seeing it again. We're absolutely seeing it again because, honestly, the recession is not actually a bad thing. You see, yes, a recession, a depression, it's going to be a period of a lot of pain for the people who are hurt by it. I understand that. I'm not trying to minimize any of that. But the grievous and really unforgivable and just destructive error that we could make as a society is learn the wrong lessons from all these recessions and depressions of our history. 
I'm not a guy who likes to dwell on the past. I like to learn from it. Well, let's learn from our past here. See, actually, again, the dot-com bubble, when everybody was pouring a bunch of money into companies that had no revenue, no sales, no profit, there was a necessary correction there. That money needed to go elsewhere. All those investments that were made there needed to be sold off to other people, and then those people needed to take that those assets and go elsewhere where they'll actually be productive. So in that way, a recession actually isn't a bad thing. The problem is, it isn't the recession that's the problem. It's the events that lead into the recession that cause the difficulty. It's frankly the Federal Reserve and all of its nonsense, out-of-thin-air out of money printing that creates the entire volatile business cycle that we have before us. Because really, it doesn't make any intuitive sense that we should have years and years of economic growth of good times, seemingly, and then out of nowhere, seemingly overnight, the whole thing pops, goes poof, and we're all looking around going, what happened? I'm unemployed. My stock portfolio fell by 50%. What just happened? I thought things were good. Well, again, that's created by these bubbles. The Federal Reserve bubble. They create a bunch of new dollars, and those dollars have to go somewhere. As I pointed out, when the Fed prints new money, They don't send me and you a check. They give it to their banks, and the banks lend it out, and they lend it out to hot areas, where areas, whether it's real estate, whether it's the tech bubble, internet companies of the late 1990s, early 2000s, whatever seems like the smart thing to do at the time, the hot money, that's where it's going to go, and inevitably too much money is going to push in there, creating a bubble, and ultimately creating an unsustainable economic boom period that is sure to eventually pop in the form of a recession or a depression. It's inevitable. It's like gravity. You can't fight it. What's really interesting to me is that candidate Donald Trump, before he was in office, before he was elected, was going on and on about how the stock market was a big bubble and that the Fed was doing wrong by America by keeping interest rates artificially low. Well, quite honestly, that's a take that I agreed with. But wouldn't you know it, President Trump, after he took office, suddenly he has done a total 180. I mean, could not have done more of a 180 on this particular topic. And he wants to keep that bubble inflated for as long as possible, or at least as as long as he's in office, and certainly through this next 2020 presidential election of that November. I'm sure somebody in his cabinet when he took office told him, hey, uh, President Trump, uh, I'm not going to argue with you about the bubble, but let me tell you something. You do not want to be the one holding the bag when this thing pops because you will not be elected president if it happens in 2020. So with all that being said, what do I think is going to happen? Well, as I pointed out, nobody can predict the future. And I'm somebody, so yes, I also cannot predict the future. But... We're forced to at least make plans, aren't we? We're forced to try to hedge and sort of adapt as best we can as human beings because that's reality. So what am I doing? What am I doing with my money? What should you be doing with your money, perhaps, if you have a decent portfolio? Well, if you have any type of portfolio, any type of investment account, retirement account, the first thing I can tell you, I would definitely have 
10, 15, maybe even as much as 20% of my value, of my net worth, at least of my retirement portfolio, that kind of deal. I would have it in gold, silver, or some type of precious metals, but really especially gold. That's the big one. And honestly, if not gold, why not some Bitcoin while you're at it too? Honestly, gold and Bitcoin. Not necessarily the same amount of both, but I could see putting as much as 5-10% of your portfolio in Bitcoin as well. Now, I'll fully admit that I'm not the expert on Bitcoin, and I'm not the person who's going to be able to tell you exactly why it's valuable in the, most, in the best explanation possible. But you know what? I have some recommendations of some people who can if you're really curious about it. First of all, there's a YouTube person, personality called, her name is Naomi Brockwell, and sometimes she's referred to as Bitcoin Girl. Well, she's really good, especially on your basic stuff. She's good at explaining, hey, how do I actually just simply buy it? What do I have to do to actually possess Bitcoin? She has a lot of really helpful, important, and uh, just, yeah, actionable kind of advice. I think Naomi Brockwell is a really good resource for you, and then plus, the author of the Bitcoin Standard, and I, I might be saying his name wrong, but Safidian Amos. I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but regardless, I'll hit you with some. I'll hit you with some links to both Naomi's pages and the Bitcoin Standard in the description of this here podcast. So that was a lot on recessions, huh? Maybe I should put those numbers on my Instagram page as well. You know what? I think I'll do that too. Go to Instagram.com slash Everybody Trades, and I'll throw up some of those GDP numbers, make it a little bit easier to follow along with audio, too. So with all that being said, let's get the heck out of here. This is a little bit longer than mine usually are, but sometimes I got a little bit more to say. All right. Until next time, everybody, I'm John Miller, and this has been Everybody Trades. Everybody Trades.